Why would the Fed cut rates here? The Fed has even acknowledged that at some point it'll be necessary to cut rates. But why would you cut rates now, right? Or anytime in the near future? If the markets are doing okay and the economy is fine, then why would I need to cut rates? I mean, technically, as we've said before, this is kind of nirvana for the Fed, right? I, I've got plenty of ammo in the, in, in the gun now to fight the next recession at 5% interest rates. Why would I give that up until there's a need, right? I, I need to have some event or some crisis or a recession, whatever it is, to use that ammunition. It's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts, presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. Of course, it's the second best day of the week. But, you know, Brent, I was thinking about this the other day is that, you know, nobody really works on Friday anymore, right? That's right. So this really can't be the second best day of the week because Thursday is now Friday, which means Wednesday is now the second best day of the week, which means hump day is actually on Tuesday. Well, just think, tomorrow <laughs> is yesterday today or something like that whatever she said okay you're not even helping yeah okay just go back to doing what you're doing <laughs> anyway <laughs> if you're not working tomorrow congratulations it's friday uh today is thursday of course and uh markets uh, again yesterday as we we touched on we'll get into a little bit more this morning about what jerome powell said to the house financial services committee yesterday now today uh, Jerome Powell will be talking to uh, the Senate, so he'll be making further uh, testimony today. Um, that kind of roiled the markets a little bit yesterday with what he was talking about. We'll get into more of that this morning in particular. But, um, you know, what's important here is, is that we're now moving into that last, you know, few days here of the month. There's a lot of long exposure in the market. Um, not surprisingly, with the move that we've had in the market, particularly since January, with markets rallying higher. A lot of portfolio managers that I've been talking about um, are very long, and so we're starting to see potentially some of that pre-end of quarter rebalancing. And so <laughs> markets have been selling off here. And it's interesting because, you know, the headlines this morning are, of, you know, S&P having its worst week since May. And, you know, you've got to go always back a couple of months to have a week, you know, a week. But this is what happens. You know, we get to these kind of stretches in the markets where we get what this called a buying stampede. And everybody gets very exuberant about those things. But we'll get into that um, this morning as well. The, you know, the one thing here to keep a watch on is that we touched on consumer sentiment. Now, it's going to be a subject of our newsletter this weekend. So make sure you get by the website. Make sure you're subscribed. We'll email it to you on Saturday. But talking a little bit about consumer sentiment, consumer sentiment is improving pretty decently. Um, we're starting to see consumers really starting to come back around, but investor sentiment is way ahead of the game. Investor sentiment's now pushing way back, well into kind of previous market peak territory. So, you know, investors have now gotten very exuberant about the markets. Uh, but consumers overall becoming more optimistic. And we're starting to see some of the economic data begin to respond in kind, right? And this is what you would expect to see. This is problematic. And again, we'll talk about this this morning, but this is problematic for the Fed. And it's, a, it's an issue that we've talked about before and the Fed is aware of. And the big concern that the Fed has right now is that we're going to see a reacceleration of inflation. And this is really one of the points that, 
you know, kind of potentially is weighing on the markets here over the last couple of days, other than the fact that those markets were really, really overbought here. But the point is, is that monetary accommodation, right? This is the thing everybody keeps hoping for, this, this return of liquidity to the markets. And this is what's been kind of driving this whole chase higher, has been this expectation of this return of monetary accommodation. But listening to what the Fed said yesterday, Certainly doesn't seem to be be the case. Another interesting data point, though, also is housing, right? Housing has begun to stabilize. We saw a huge jump in housing starts yesterday, very big jump. Mortgage, despite high mortgage rates, home buyers are still out there buying houses. And you know, you we everybody was kind of expecting this big downturn in housing, and we have this big price contraction. And yes, there were certain areas of the country that did see some contraction in prices but we never had the housing correction that everybody was expecting. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that there isn't enough houses for sale, not because, we, they're, not because the inventory is not really there, the inventory is really there, there's just no option. And what I mean by that is, is that if you own a house and you have a 3% mortgage, and you go, you know, I'd like to sell my house and capture the price gain I've got into it, and maybe think about downsizing a little bit for retirement, whatever it is, but if I sell my house with a 3% mortgage, I'm going to wind up with a 7% mortgage on the other side of this. So people are just opting to stay in their houses, right? It doesn't make sense to sell it if I've got to jump into a much higher payment. That's, that defeats the whole purpose of the downsizing. So this is keeping inventory very shallow, which is keeping prices elevated. So this home affordability issue is remaining while we thought we were going to correct some of that because of this surge in interest rates. Now, this is also problematic for the Fed, which is wanting this idea of, of a correction within asset prices and, and, and overall wealth, right? We want to bring that down, get that back down to some level of normality, which will help bring down inflation. But again, the, the, very, the very impact, and again, this is a, a problem the Fed caused itself by keeping interest rates at zero for way too long. You've refinanced a whole generation of people into three, three and a half percent mortgages. So when interest rates went up, everybody just stopped. And this is, this is one of the reasons why new home sales are still doing okay, because it's the only option people have to buy right now, which is new home sales. But we'll get into that more this morning. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell we're, <clears throat> as we get close to the open. Markets have sold off now three days in a row. Futures are pointing lower this morning on the back of that commentary yesterday from Jerome Powell to the House Financial Services Committee, talking about the need to hike rates a couple of more times here this year. To, because inflation is not coming down. But that's just the reason, right? The markets need a reason to do something. And so this, this conversation yesterday from Jerome Powell, I'm sure we'll have some more of those comments today, that's pressuring the markets here. But again, the market was due for a correction. We had had a really big run here. Markets were very overbought, three standard deviations above moving averages. We've talked about this on the show a couple of times, saying, hey, look, take some profits here. We're going to get a correction. And so that's all that's happening here. This is not the end of the world. It's just simply the market's pulling back. We'll get a better entry opportunity. Our first level of support is 4270 on the S&P 500. That's where the 20-day moving average is. If we slip through that, you're going to be down to 4180. So right around 4200 by the time we get there. That's the 50-day moving average. That's probably going to give you a decent entry point to add some exposure to your portfolio. 
Um, we're not on a sell signal just yet, but we are very close. So today's activity, if the market's open down this morning, the Dow's down about 110 points. The Nasdaq's down about another 50, 60 points this morning. So again, that, sh that may be enough if we finish towards the lows of the day. Uh, that may be enough pressure to actually flip the, the uh, sell signal back into place, suggesting that we might see a continuation of this correctional process. Doesn't mean every day is going to be negative. We're going to have some rally days in here, but looks like the market may start to try to work itself back down into a, a lower level to work off some of this overbought condition. Or we will just see the market start one of these consolidations where the markets just kind of go sideways for a month or two, allow those moving averages to catch up. But nonetheless, it's going to be probably a little bit choppy here over the course of the next couple of weeks, particularly if we trigger that sell signal. So again, just kind of keep a watch in your portfolio. Make sure you're taking a little bit of profits, rebalance some of your risk. But that's what you need to know here before the bell. And coming back after the break, we will talk a little bit more about what the Fed said yesterday, why that's impacting the markets. And of course, make sure you get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails. It'll all be there for you right there, realinvestmentadvice.com. I'm Real Science Roberts. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So uh, a couple of things happening um, between yesterday and today that are, are they're kind of definitely moving the markets. Part of the conversation, you know, and I said we'll get into more of this this morning about what Jerome Powell said yesterday. But overnight, the Swiss National Bank has hiked interest rates by 25 basis points. Um, that's in line with expectations. Norges Bank uh, hiked by 50 basis points as well. So um, Bank of England also hiking more than expected. So, you know, the, the issue is, is that inflation is not coming down as quickly as the central banks expected. And so they're still hiking rates. And this was specifically what Jerome Powell noted yesterday and uh, with his commentary to the House Financial Service Committee uh, yesterday. Today, he'll be talking again to the Senate and his conversation yesterday very clearly stating that they're not done because inflation remains problematic. It remains too high right now. Inflation's not coming down. Yes, CPI is falling. And again, as we've talked about before, you've got to be careful with that because, yes, headline CPI is falling. But again, it's math. We're to the point of the cycle. Again, this time last year, we were printing 1.2% rates of inflation. So on a year-over-year -year comparison, right, when we compare this June to last June or last May, whatever it is, it looks like inflation is falling. But again, it's a function of math. If I pay $4 for a gallon of gasoline in June of last year, and I pay $4 of gasoline for for gasoline this year, inflation is zero. Even though the, the gasoline is still a dollar higher than what I was paying for a year before that. 
right? So we used to pay three, then it goes to four during the inflation span. A year later, it's still four. Prices didn't get cheaper, but inflation is zero. And that's, that's the issue with headline inflation, is that a lot of it is just the year-over-year comparison. It's the math. Inflation is still ticking up. And, if, and more, more importantly, and what the Fed looks at is what's called core inflation, which is still running near 5%. We, were, we printed a 0.4% increase in core. That's 4.8% a year annualized. So that's still way too high. And that was, that was Jerome Powell's conversation yesterday, is that inflation is not coming down nearly as quickly as they expected. And so they, have a, they, they see a need to hike rates further. Over the coming months doesn't mean every meeting, but they're expecting one to two more rate hikes. They are aware of the lag effect. Of course, Jerome Powell keeps mentioning this. You know, it's like, oh, this lag effect is going to show up, and we're going to have a sharp slowdown in activity, and that hasn't really shown up yet. And again, what are the things that the Fed's actually looking for? Yes, they're looking for inflation to come down, but they're also needing what? They need employment to go, unemployment to start to rise a bit. Because, again, as long as people are fully employed, they have money to spend. And that's going to keep inflation more elevated. So part of what the Fed needs is either a bit of a recession with higher unemployment. That would be the ideal situation, a mild recession with higher unemployment, which would bring down core inflation across the board. But that's not working. And and so again, you know, this has been the this has been the problem for the Fed is that they keep wanting to hike rates. They need to slow down the economy and the market keeps going, I don't care. As we've said before, the problem with markets and this this goes back to our, our we touched on uh consumer confidence um, a minute ago. The problem with higher asset prices is that it boosts consumer confidence. In 2010, I've, I've mentioned to you this before, is that in 2010, Ben Bernanke, when he launched QE2, he said, I'm doing this in order to boost asset prices. The reason we do QE is to boost asset prices, which in turn lifts consumer confidence, creating economic growth. Well, if I have economic growth, I have inflation because inflation is a byproduct of economic activity. So by the very nature of markets jumping in here going, woohoo, don't care what the Fed's doing, I'm going to buy AI stocks, right? <laughs> Running up the market. We've now created the wealth effect. And then this was the key point, right? Even Ben Bernanke said this, is that you know the creation of this wealth effect is what will do this. Because if I create more wealth and higher asset prices then people feel better and they go out and spend money. If they're out spending money, what happens to inflation? Inflation goes up. Remember, it's always a supply-demand issue. This was how we got ourselves into this mess. In 2020, we decided that we'd shut down the economy. So we completely shuttered in all types of manufacturing activity, services, etc. Didn't have any supply of anything. And we gave people a bunch of money. And so they went out and spent it on stuff we didn't have supply to deliver. And so prices went up. That's, you know, it's like, hey, I've got, I've got two widgets here. Uh, they normally sell for a dollar a piece, but because I've only got two, 
what are you willing to give me for? Well, I'll give you five. Okay, there you go. That's that's how you get inflation is supply and demand. That's it. That's that's just a simple math. And so we have now spun that around. We now have a lot of inventory, right? Inventory's back. And people still have a good bit of cash sitting in the banks. And, and this is what we talked. Remember, we touched on yesterday the fact that people haven't been making student loan payments. That's about twelve to fifteen billion dollars a month on extra money people had to spend that otherwise they wouldn't have if they were having to make their student loan payments. So yes, inventories have come back. The economy has come back online, and we've certainly seen a slowing of economic activity. We were running at about a twelve percent annualized rate of growth back in twenty twenty. That's been dropping. We're now down to about 2% annualized rates of growth. So we've certainly had a slowdown of economic activity. We're not near a recession yet. But we still maintain that full level of employment, which is giving people income enough to continue to spend the money they need, which is keeping inflation more sticky, right? So this is, this is the Fed's challenge. But higher asset prices give people this idea of comfort, so they go spend maybe more money than they would normally. God, my, my portfolio is doing great. I've got, you know, I made an extra $2,000 this month in my, in my, my uh, investment account, so I'm going to go out and buy that new thing I wanted. All right, and I'll just sell my assets later as soon as they stop going up. <laughs> it's always the premise. <laughs> so this is where we are. Right, so this is the Fed's challenge, and this is what the Fed's trying to do. But but central banks around the world, right, are are hiking interest rates to combat inflation. Inflation is still the fight that has not ended, even though the market is no longer agreeing with that. Right, the market's ignoring what the Fed is doing. The market is ignoring what central banks around the world are doing, and and continuing to rise. But the fight for inflation is still going on. Now, at some point, somebody's going to be wrong. Either the Fed's wrong and inflation will fall and everything will be fine and it'll be good, or the market's wrong and you're going to have a, a bigger correction at some point. You can't, call, you can't call what happened over the last couple of days a correction yet. We're just having a pullback at the moment. You know, maybe we're starting a correctional process. It certainly would be normal at this point. I mean, we've had a very big run. Markets are very extended. They're very overbought for the year. So, again, as we were talking about uh, at the open, a pullback here would certainly be normal and should be expected. But at some point, do we actually see that lag effect that we've all been waiting for? And we'll see. I don't, I don't have the answer for that. That's, that's something that, that we're going to have to continue to monitor and, and talk about as we kind of go along and, and read the economic data. But let me get to some of the comments that were made yesterday by Jerome Powell. <clears throat> Given how far we've come, it may make sense to move rates higher. This is Jerome Powell. But to do so at a more moderate pace. This is, this is where he was kind of laying the groundwork for some additional rate hikes. Inflation and economic activity haven't slowed as much as expected or anticipated, which is now, of course, casting kind of more uncertainty over how much further they'll hike rates this year. 
Right now, according to the Wall Street Journal, federal officials see a risk that their past rate increases together with recent banking industry stresses will eventually create a sharper-than-anticipated slowdown. They are trying to balance that uh, against the risk that the economy proves more resilient than expected and inflation stays too high, requiring them to increase rates higher than otherwise. And see, that's, the, that's, that, that's that problem that we all face as investors, right? I've got this batch of economic data over here, and this is our article for tomorrow, which is talking about recession indicators. We have all these indicators that are talking about a recession and that these indicators have never been wrong historically speaking and so i've got quite a list of them tomorrow in this blog post talking about these re recession indicators clearly suggest a recession is coming but then you have the market over here saying nope no recession earnings are improving everything is great ai is going to change the world question is, is who's right but that's the big challenge for the fed trying to balance what's right and what's wrong. All right, quick break. We'll come back. More to get into this morning. Don't go away right here on The Real Investment Show. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. Of course, uh, it is Thursday. And uh, normally Michael Leibowitz is here uh, with me on Thursdays, but he's on the beach today, so he said no. <laughs> um, so I've talked a little bit about the Fed as we were kind of, you know, and again, this is going on some more today. So we're going to hear more commentary from Jerome Powell today as he talks to the Senate. And, but, uh, but again, it's, this is kind of becoming well acknowledged right there's there's really nothing coming out of jerome powell that we haven't already heard before also today you've got several other fed speakers today also coming out to make notes and, and i think we're going to see more and more commentary around the need to hike rates further but again the markets continue to ignore that right the markets continue to say yeah we hear you we don't believe you um so we think you're done and then you're going to start cutting rates sooner than later but the reality is, is, and again, as we talked about before, why would the Fed cut rates here? The Fed has even acknowledged that at some point it'll be necessary to cut rates. But why would you cut rates now, right, or anytime in the near future? If the markets are doing okay and the economy is fine, then why would I need to cut rates? I mean, technically, as we've said before, this is kind of nirvana for the Fed, right? I, I've got I've got plenty of ammo in the in in the gun now to fight the next recession at five percent interest rates. Why would I give that up until there's a need, right? I, I need to have some event or some crisis or a recession, whatever it is, to use that ammunition. But I'm not just going to simply cut rates for the sake of the financial markets. Furthermore, the markets don't need it. The markets are doing fine. But the market keeps betting on this idea that the Fed is about to cut rates, right? It's like, oh, thank goodness, we've gotten to a pause. We're not hiking rates anymore. So that, that means that as soon as we stop pausing, right, we're going to start cutting. So now that we pause, cuts right around the corner. This is what the markets are betting on. They're betting on this more monetary accommodation to help boost the economy create this economic growth, but yet 
there doesn't really seem to be a clear indication as to why the Fed needs to do that. And the Fed keeps alluding to this as well. Inflation and economic activity, as I said, have not slowed nearly as much as the Fed has been hoping for. At their policy meeting last uh, uh, last week, officials left the benchmark Fed funds rate at the range between five and five and a quarter. So technically, though, they hiked 25 basis. Uh, they left them unchanged at 5%. At that meeting, most of them were projecting two more rate hikes this year. Market didn't believe them. But there you go. So now the now Jerome Powell is trying to reassert that point here that they're going to have to keep hiking rates some more because inflation is not coming down as fast as expected. The one risk that we run, of course, is these recent bank failures. Silicon Valley Bank, etc. The higher the Fed hikes rates, the more stress it puts on asset prices that are owned by the banks, which are the bonds, right? So they own bonds. Those bonds go down in value. That's their capital, so forth and so on. While it appears at the moment that the worst of those kind of financial bank issues may be behind us at the moment, there's still a risk that we could see a resurgence of some of those risks going forward if interest rates keep going higher. And if the Fed does continue to increase interest rates. But let me, let me clarify one thing, because this is often confusing. What the Fed does only affects the short end of the curve. Out to about two years, three years maybe. But two years for certain, there's a very high correlation between the Federal Reserve changes to the overnight lending rate and all the bills that are two years or less. Right now, the government is issuing a lot of very short-term bills to replace the funding on their balance sheet that was used for the um, debt ceiling freeze that we had going on. Yesterday was a good example. When so we've talked about this before, there's been a lot of fear and concern. But it's like, oh my gosh, when the Fed ha- or so when the Treasury has to issue all these debt, we're gonna have this big this big crash in the bond market because nobody's there to absorb those bonds. They did a 20 year auction yesterday, and it went off like a charm. There was exceeding demand for the bonds. Of course, there was. Their Treasuries with a high rate, comparatively speaking, why wouldn't I want to lock up some money right now for the next 20 years at 3.7%? That's particularly the case if you expect interest rates to be cut at some point in the near future, right? This is the whole bet by the Fed, by the markets, right? The, 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 the Fed's going to have to cut rates. If that's the case, why would I not want to lock up money for 20 years at 3.7%, I don't have to I don't have to keep the bond that long, but I certainly want I want that yield. Why wouldn't I want to buy that there if you're expecting rate cuts to come in the next year or so? That's going to make those bonds a lot more valuable. And so yes, there's plenty of demand for those treasuries 
Everybody was so worried. It's like, oh, we're going to have this big issuance of debt and the whole world's going to come apart. Liquidity is rising. Remember, everybody was talking about how this is this refilling of the TGA was going to cause this big contraction liquidity and that was going to crash the markets. Liquidity has been rising despite the fact that the, the Treasury is refilling their account and we're having these auctions. There's so much demand on the short end by money market funds that whenever a bill comes to auction, it gets immediately bought. Because all these money market funds, everybody's chasing 5% yields in money markets. When these bonds hit the market, these money market funds have to have them. And they're maturing on a regular basis. Remember, these are one-month, three-month, six-month bills. So as those bills mature, I've got to replace it in the money market fund. I've got more cash coming in all the time. More and more people are putting money into 5% money markets. So every time you make your deposit, I can't just sit on the cash. i got to invest it in something yielding 5% because I've got to pay you that interest rate. So that demand is huge. Then on the other side of this, from portfolio management standpoint, again, like I said, you're coming to market with a new 20-year bond at 3.7%. I'm in. Give me all you've got. Sure, interest rates might take up a little bit from here. They're not going far. And if they go to 3.8, I'll buy some more of those. If they go 3.9, I'll buy those. Because at some point over the next year or so, what the Fed's trying to engineer is what? A recession. And if they try to engineer that recession, and even as the Fed says, like at some point it'll be appropriate to cut rates, that means that at that point when they cut rates that they are having to combat a slower economic environment. That means yields fall which means the prices of all those bonds go up in price. So, yes, plenty of demand. All these fears that people were throwing out there, we kept telling you, it's like, don't pay attention to that. That's not the way this works. And now we're seeing the, the, the reality of that. And this is, see, this is the problem with all the fear mongers. And, and this is why you've got to be careful about who you choose to listen to and you know, kind of what information that you take in. And this is why we try to present you with both sides of every argument. Say, here's the bullish, here's the bearish, right? Because the problem with being bullish or bearish is, is it gets you stuck on one side. These exceedingly bearish arguments, they always sound great, but they have a, pretend, a higher propensity to be wrong because the end of the world generally never comes. Certainly, there's some bad economic data out there. Certainly, there's some bad indicators out there that suggest that we're going to have a recession, that potentially we could have even a fairly deep recession at some point. But it's still not the end of the world, right? It's just a recession. It's just an economic cycle. Yes, markets will decline, and that will give us a better opportunity to buy things cheaper. But be careful of these things that talk about the end of the world as we know it. It's a great song, but generally never happens in real life. And so this is why you've always got to keep that balance with when you're looking at how you're managing your own portfolio and your own money, kind of keep a focus on that. Like, you know, what's, you know, I've got to factor in these, these possible outcomes. But again, investing is a lot like gambling. We've talked about this before. We always have to measure every bet we make when we play a hand of poker as an example, or blackjack, or whatever your 
personal game of choice is. And if you don't gamble, just follow along with the, the example. <laughs> but it's all about risk and reward. What is my probability, right? What is my higher, when I say probability, what's, what has the highest potential of working versus the possibilities, which are the lowest potential odds? Is it possible I can lose money on a royal flush? Sure, it's possible. Depends on what suit I have, right? It's probable that I'm going to win if I have a royal flush. The problem is always measuring those possibilities and probabilities when it comes to your portfolio. And this is why it's important to, you know, you got to keep emotions in check. You've got to, you know, well, and look, we're all guilty. We all make emotional mistakes. I make emotional mistakes all the time in portfolios. We just try to correct them very quickly and get back on track. Everybody does it. But the important thing is, is to always measure that risk and reward. Nothing's perfect, but we can do better by focusing on what we do the worst. All right, be right back after the break. The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, there was a comment in the chat, and I'm gonna we're gonna get to uh, questions here at the top of the hour. So again, uh, still running two hours this week, as we are filling in with uh, for Chris Salcedo from seven to eight a.m. on KSCV AM seven hundred. Um, but there was a good question, uh, actually a comment, um, saying that boomers on the retirement train are listening to pitches for annuities, given where rates are today. That's a good point because I'm hearing a lot of commercials right now about annuities because rates are high. And then there's a lot of pitches now, right? You know, it's like you can lock in this annuity rate. You're going to get 7% and no downside risk. And, and those are all true statements. But you've got to be careful. That, you know, the, and this is kind of that emotional thing I was just talking about, right? We tend to 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 jump into things because of, oh, look at the yield on that. Let me go buy this, or you know, look at the yield on the money market. I'm going to go put five percent money market. And again, last year everybody was like, oh, I can't. You know, I just want to buy you know T bills. I just want three month T bills where I can get four percent. Those are all fine until things change. And this is the problem that people get themselves into. If I buy a three-month T-bill and rates fall, when that T-bill matures, then I'm going to buy a lower rate. And if yields are falling quickly, which they will at some point, right? The Fed's going to cut rates back to zero at some point. So when that T-bill matures, that three-month T-bill matures, my rate is going to go back to zero, and you go, well, then I'll just buy a longer duration T-bond. Well, the problem with that is, is that yield will also fall. And this is why I was saying before, a lot of managers, you know, people were all concerned about these bond auctions. And I kept saying they're not going to be a problem because if I can lock in a 20-year T-bond at 3.7, 3.8%, why wouldn't I do that? I don't have to worry about that rate for 20 years. That's guaranteed income. And if rates fall, the price of that bond goes through the roof, right? It's going to go up 40, 50%. 
for everybody buying the short-term T-bills, when those mature, they have no options. See, that's the risk. It's okay for doing it right now. I'm not saying don't do it. And if you've got a, if you've got a need for cash in the next six months, buy a six-month T-bill. It'll mature in six months, and you can use your cash for whatever you're going to use it for, right? You know, I'm going to go buy a house, car, whatever, right? That's completely okay if you have a need for that cash. But a lot of people are jumping into T-bills for the yield, but not thinking about what comes next. See, and this is always the risk with any investment, which is I always have to think about what comes next. And, you know, for most investors, they just kind of jump off to the most shiny object. And annuity pitches are really, really good. No downside risk. You know, guaranteed return. Some of these annuities will even give you an upfront payment, like you deposit money and they'll give you a bonus, right? Because they, they want your cash. And there's nothing wrong with an annuity, right? We've talked about before on the show, three reasons to own an annuity. I own an annuity. Why? Because I'm going to sue happy business, right? Every, you know, I've got legal risk all the time from, from investors. So I'm an annuity it's, it's because they are protected from judgments, bankruptcy, et cetera. So I've got, I've got protected assets from any, anything like that that might happen. So if you're, if you're in a high-risk business, right, you own a business, you're a business owner, an annuity makes a whole lot of sense. If you need a guaranteed rate of income in retirement, like I have to have, on top of my Social Security, I have to have $1,000 a month to pay my bills, keep the lights on, keep the, keep the mortgage paid. I've got to have an extra $1,000 a month buy an annuity. They're great because when you retire, you get a guaranteed income stream for the rest of your life until you die. Nothing wrong with that. If you are a really high income earner, and you need some, and, and you know, putting money into your 401k plan is, pff, doesn't even start tapping your savings potential. An annuity is a great place to put some after tax dollars for tax deferred growth. And so there's certainly some good reasons to own an annuity. The problem is, is these are sold to investors and to retirees are saying, oh, you need to put all your money into this annuity. And it's going to give you X rate. And it sounds very alluring, right? You may not have to worry about the stock market going up and down. I'm just going to get this rate of return. Yeah, true. The problem then becomes when they need their money <laughs> down the road. Or you get through this. And again, when do annuity sales have the best, the best sell rate, right? When markets are in turmoil. Like oh God, you know I just can't I can't I just can't take this downside risk in the markets you know I'm just gonna put my money in this annuity and I have to worry about it and it's sold to people and that's the key word it's sold to investors it's not a tool that's utilized properly it's just sold to people because it's a very high commission product so the person selling you the annuity gets compensated very well for doing that. And so there's a the big incentive to have you put as much of your money as possible into an annuity. Again, I'm not poo-pooing annuities. I'm telling you the risk. The very high commission product. There's also a lot of penalties and cost inside of that annuity that you need to be aware of. But importantly, this is what happens to a lot of investors. They buy these annuities in the moment of emotional distress because of what's going on in the markets. Oh, I've just got to protect my money. 
So they put all their money into an annuity. They feel pretty good about it right now. I'm getting 7%. It's fine. And then the market starts going up 10% a year, 12% a year, 15% a year. And they're like, man, I'm stuck in this. Look, look what the market did last year, and look what my annuity did. Yeah, but Mr. Jones, you bought this for the guaranteed income. Yeah, but look at what the market's doing. I could be making a lot more money. I'll just sell the annuity. Well, if you sell the annuity, you're going to take a big penalty because coming out of this, there's a 7% penalty if you withdraw in the first year, 6% in the second year. So what, you mean I'm going to take a loss on my annuity if I sell it? Yes, sir. That's what's going to happen. The other problem is, is that if you put all your money into an annuity and you had any aspiration to maybe leave some money to your kids, that's now gone. When you die, the annuity goes away. The money goes away. Again, I'm not poo-pooing annuities. Annuities have a great opportunity to fit within a retirement plan, right? We use them all the time for our clients. But there are specific needs that those are used for. And just like any investment, whether it's a stock, a mutual fund, an ETF, an annuity, a whole life insurance policy, um, a UIL, I mean, just go through all the instruments. Every one of them have good and bad to them. It's just important to use them properly as the tools that they are intended to. So when somebody's treating you to a free dinner to sell you an annuity and tell you to put all your money into it, you should probably step back and say, who really benefits here? There's no free lunch, as they say, and there's no free dinner <laughs> in, the, in this particular example. But just be careful. Um, again, you know, if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, if you've got questions, Danny, Richard, Jonathan Penn, you know, you, these, you know, these certified financial planners we have, they're the very best in the business. And, and they can walk you through the process and tell you if it's good for you or not. And they'll give you an honest assessment. It may be a good tool. Again, I have one. I'm saying, and again, you know, I'm not telling you not to buy an annuity. I have one. I've had it for years. But I have a specific need for why I have that annuity. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do I need this annuity? And this is all you need to really answer. Do I need this annuity and what it provides? Or am I just making an emotional decision based on what the market's doing? And all these dire forecasts that are out there saying the end of the world's coming. You know, in, in 2018, Greta Thunberg said that we were all going to die in five years because we keep using fossil fuels. Five years later, we're all still here. Right? The end of the world didn't come. It's the same thing in the financial markets. The end of the world very rarely comes. So just make sure that we're not making an emotional decision when we purchase a product. And they're all products, right? Everything's a product. The service I provide to clients is a product, right? We're all selling a product. Just understand do I need that product or not? And if I need that product, am I, for what I am paying, and you are paying for that product, expenses, costs, fees, etc. Is it giving me the benefit that I need? And if the answers are, are yes, buy the product. I would like to buy a product called a Ferrari, but 
can't really justify the cost versus just driving the six miles I need to get to work <laughs> in stop and go traffic. Do I need the product or would I just like to have the product? That's the real question. All right. Wrap up this hour of the show. Coming up top of the hour, get your questions and comments. I got a couple of email questions uh, over the last day or two. Uh, people that are at work and can't talk on the phone um, or read the YouTube channel. They emailed in some questions. So I will uh, answer those also. But taking your questions and comments here on the show, coming up top of the hour, Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on our latest newsletter link. Get our latest newsletter. Make sure you subscribe, though, because I'll have the new one out this weekend. Get sent right to your email inbox. Also, um, our latest blog post, Daily Market Commentary. We put that out every morning for you at 7.30 sharp. Write your email inbox. Very short read, three minutes. Help you uh, prepare for the day as to what's going on. Come see you. We, we, got, we got you covered. You just got to get to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. It's hour number two of The Real Investment Show. Yes, uh, if you were expecting Chris Salcedo this morning, sorry, he's on vacation this week. So you're stuck with me for another hour talking about that boring stuff. Money. Economics. Interest rates. You know, the Fed. Those type of things. So uh, we are taking your questions here, of course. Uh, feel free to give us a call either on the phone at 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. Or simply go to our YouTube page at The Real Investment Show on YouTube and uh, just type in your question into our chat and I'll be happy to answer that for you uh, as well. So we'll we'll go through those. Um, just real quick, kind of update market futures right now down just a smidge. NASDAQ's down about 47 points this morning. Uh, S&P's down about 12, at, uh, kind of pre-market uh, Dow's down a little over 100 points. And again, not surprising this. We've already had three days of a correction started, uh, you know, uh, kind of last Friday. Um, and, and that's not surprising. Markets have got we've been talking about that. You know, we've gotten very overbought and the markets needed to have a bit of a pullback here. And so we're starting to see some of that kind of that just that rotational action that we've been talking about yesterday. We, we saw money move into energy, which has been deeply beaten up lately, um, kind of out of favor money coming out of some of the high-flying tech stocks moving in that direction. That rotation we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, kind of expected that's happening. Part of the reason for the sell-off yesterday was also the fact that Jerome Powell up on uh, Capitol Hill talking to the House Financial Services Committee, talking about the need for a couple more rate hikes. They're not done hiking uh, rates yet, that inflation remains sticky, and you know, that's just something they've got to keep working on. So that took a little bit of the wind out of the cell of the market. Today, Jerome Powell in front of the Senate Banking Committee will be doing pretty much the same song and dance. So expect some more commentary out today. Um, yesterday, bond futures or interest rates opened up higher and then fell pretty sharply throughout the day as Jerome Powell talked about the need for a slower economy, the need to bring down inflation. This morning, interest rates are opening up again. But more of that commentary will likely see, you know, um, a, a, a decline in interest rates and bond prices moving up higher uh, in the day as well. So just kind of that's kind of where the markets are right now. Again, nothing, you know, really overly shocking here that you're having a bit of a correction. We're very close to a sell signal, though. Um, so we could see a little bit more selling pressure as we move into the end of the month. It is quarter end rebalancing. 
So all these mutual funds that run fixed allocations, 60-40, 80-20, 70-30, 30-60, whatever their allocations are, um, they are going to have to sell equity to buy fixed income. So that, that rebalancing process is probably starting now, but will likely gain a bit of traction as we move into the end of the month. And that may be one of the, the catalysts for this kind of recent sell-off over the last couple of days. Again, nothing's dramatically changed with the markets or the economic environment. It's just the market stocks really got well ahead of themselves at this point. 281-558-5738 or on our YouTube channel, Real Investment, The Real Investment Show. Type your question in there. I'll, I'll try to get to all of them. Um, Randy, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? All right. Part of my, retire part of my retirement will be a lump sum or I can turn it into a monthly annuity. Mm -hmm. How do I make that decision? Depends on what you need. Um, so first of all is the annuities tend to be that you get from the companies tend to be pretty good. Um, and, and the interest rate is decently high on them in terms of the annual payment that comes out of it. So the first calculation you need to do is, okay, if I invest my money into stocks, what return would I expect from the stock market versus what will, and, and will that equate to what the value of that annuity will be over the same period of time? So that's your first calculation. The second more important calculation is this. What do you want to have happen at the end of the day? And what I mean at the end of the day is when you pass away. If you don't have a need or a desire to leave assets to your children, then you, the annuity probably will make some sense for you because you will have a guaranteed payment through the rest of your life. And at the end of the day, the, 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 uh, the annuity will go away, right, because you will have passed away. And there'll be those assets will no longer exist. There'll be nothing there to pass to your children. So just whatever other assets you have will pass through your estate to your children. So that's one consideration. The other consideration you'll need to make is the, the structure of the annuity itself, right? So there you're, you'll have several options. One will be a payment only to you. And when you pass away, then that, that annuity ends. And that'll be a higher value. Uh, the other option is it'll cover you and your spouse until she ex until both of you expire, and that'll be a lower payment because it's paying out to two people over a longer period of time. Um, and so you'll have you'll have several options to go through. So when you get to that point, if you want some some help, just simply go to our website realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, there's an ask a question button. Um, you can just kind of send the question in, and, and we can help you analyze it and try to make the best decision for you. But the big decision between lump sum versus annuity really comes down to what you want to happen after you expire. So if you want money left over for your children, the lump sum may make a, a better choice. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So, Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks so much. 281-558-5738. Uh, That's 281-558-5738. And, and, you know, pensions, they are a dying thing. They were a great thing for businesses, and, and it's a sad thing to see them all go away. But, you know, eventually there'll be no such thing as pensions anymore. But, you know, those were, those were a great thing that businesses did for their employees way back when. And, you know, as companies keep trying to find new ways to, to manufacture more earnings and reduce benefits and those type of things, you know, the advent of 401k plans was terrible for, for uh, savers and investors. 
the death of pensions is also going to be another terrible thing for future generations, and it's a, it's a sad thing. Anyway, 281-558-5738. Um, got another question here on our YouTube channel talking about advanced auto parts, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the question is, advanced auto parts is down 60% from its highs. PE is about 10. Ford PE is 9. And um, in my opinion, they are a wide-moat company. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, is that it's not a wide moat company. And the reason it's not a wide moat company is because there's AutoZone, O'Reilly, lots of people in that space, right? There's nothing that stops me from opening up an auto parts shop. So the moat's really not there. But it's a good company. And, I, and I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with you there. And the stock is really, really beaten up. But there's a couple of things. Um, Brandon, I need my screen, please. Um, there's a couple of things that you do want to kind of pay attention to. And <clears throat> this is something that when we when we take a look at companies and this is uh, and, and if you're watching our live stream right now, I'm just sharing a couple of charts on kind of some fundamentals uh, of the company. But, you know, when we start looking at earnings, as an example, there was a huge decline in earnings for the company. And that's the one thing that's really been dragging down what's happening with the price of the stock. And, and again, not surprisingly, price tracks earnings. And, you know, cash flow has also gone negative for the company, which is something also of concern. So I, I think... And I haven't done the deep research into what's happening with advanced auto parts in particular. It is a good company. They are cheap, but they're cheap only for the moment because, again, we're looking back at, at trailing PE and expectations for forward PE. True, but we've got to figure out why that big decline in earnings is happening and is it going to be an issue going forward. So answer that question, and I think you'll have a better understanding about where uh, that stock may be trading and why it's trading where it's at. All right, quick break. We'll come back, uh, take more of your questions and comments right here on The Real Investment Show this morning. Be right back. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to The Real Investment Show this morning. Uh, taking your questions and comments here, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. It's the phone number if you want to call in live uh, from anywhere in the country. Happy to talk to you one-on-one, um, -on -one, answer your question, or if you're watching our YouTube channel. And we certainly you know, encourage you, please go to our The Real Investment Show on YouTube. You can watch our channel live every morning. And make sure you subscribe uh, and like the channel. Um, it helps us out. We appreciate it. Keeps us doing this every day. We appreciate the encouragement because Brent needs all the pats on the back he can get because he doesn't get it from here. Trust me. Uh, seriously, a uh, couple of things to get into. Um, so a couple other questions. The One of the questions is bond investment strategy. Um, currently have 40% in long-term government and 60% in three-month T-bills. Nothing wrong with that. Depends on what you want to do with your money, right? So... If you've got 100% of your money in bonds, nothing wrong with that. Principal protection, getting a yield, it's all great. Question you got to ask yourself is, what are you going to do in three months? So when those that 60% of your portfolio matures in three months, you'll get your interest payment, you'll have your money back. What's going to be your next investment? 
And again, as I said, and in, in the next investment in three months, maybe I'll buy three more. I'll buy three month T-bills again. At some point, though, that 60% is going to mature and those yields have fallen and it won't make sense. So then you'll have to figure out where to go to next. So that's the only risk that you run. And by that point, the market may have run so much at that point that now you're stuck. You're going, well, I can't buy bonds because yields are zero and I can't buy stocks because they are super overvalued again. I missed the whole opportunity. And this is the problem with being one-sided on, you know, kind of in your portfolio. I would probably look at, you know, and, and I'm assuming since you just say it's 60-40 and it's short and long duration bonds that that's the entire portfolio. I'm, I'm, I'm just making the assumption this is not just a portion of your portfolio. Um, you may want to start looking at building a small, you know, use pullbacks in the market, start building a small percentage of your portfolio in little stages in high quality dividend yielding stocks to create that return that you're looking for, but also give you some growth to outperform inflation over time. But nothing wrong with it, with owning T-bills. Again, I, I think at some point, you know, yields are going to come down that 40 percent that you've got long duration side is going to make a lot of money. Um, but then you're also going to figure out at that point where to put that money, because once interest rates go back to zero and yields on the 10 year Treasury fall to one, there's no more money to be made. So the capital gains will be maximized. You will have your maximum return at that point. Then you've got to sell the bonds and then figure out what to do next. So that's that's going to be the next challenge you'll face. Right now, it's a very safe, effective strategy. But again, be think you've got to be you've always got to be playing chess with your portfolio. Don't think about now. Think about six months from now, a year from now. Think about what happens next to make sure that you have a game plan for when I come out of this investment. Where do I go next? And, and that'll keep you on the right side of the trade. Okay, um, question was on uh, Rio in particular, but in, and importantly about metals. And we'll talk, uh, you know, kind of talk about this uh, in, in a function. So when we take a look at just the chart of, of Rio, so Rio Tinto is basically a metals miner. So first of all, gold as a function has not lived up to its expectations. In 2022, when the market was declining, we've got rampant inflation. Gold prices were falling. So the whole inflation hedge never played out. Gold's rallied a little bit um, since then, um, definitely up off the lows, but really hasn't gone surging off the you know, there were There were calls for gold going to 3000 all this type of stuff. You made a lot more money just being invested in stocks. And... You know, so the, again, this goes back to if you like metals, that's fine. But why do I own them? What's the reason for owning them? And particularly when it comes to companies, because companies have costs, right? So if I expect gold to go up, that's fine. But as gold goes up in price, the cost increases for the mining. So again, you this is where we come back and we have to look at the fundamentals of, of these companies and say, what am I paying for? What's the value? Those type of things. And, and so, um, you know, when I start taking a look at, you know, Rio in particular, you know, I want to keep a watch on income. And income's been declining over the last four quarters. So you know, we saw that income pick up um, last year. It's been declining over the last four quarters. And, and surprisingly, the, the price of stock really hasn't gone anywhere. Cash flow has picked up here recently. Um, but it's an anomaly because it's a, they, they have these spikes in cash flow, but it's kind of anomalous. And so once you strip that out, the, these kind of anomalous pops to cash flow 
um, you know, cash flow has pretty much been stagnant. So, uh, so again, nothing wrong with any of this. It's just a function of saying, okay, where is my best, you know, kind of the best bet for my capital in this environment? Because, because uh, again, as I start taking a look at, you know, companies in particular and saying, okay, you know, if I, if I want to invest in this, What's going to be my my catalyst to push this stock price higher? And again, a lot of people are chasing Rio for the dividend yield, and it has a, it has a very nice dividend yield. Nothing wrong with that at all. But you know, when I invest in equities, I'm looking for two components. I'm looking for both capital appreciation and uh, the dividend. So buying it for the dividend is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if I lose twenty or thirty percent on the capital, then I've wiped out the dividend, right? So. Just keep that in mind. Again, I, again, nothing wrong with the company. Um, I think it's fine. The question is, is what's going to be the catalyst to drive the metals higher? Because, again, the whole premise behind owning gold and all that felled miserably over the last 24 months. You know, rampant inflation should have sent gold through the roof. It didn't happen. Why? That's going to be the big question. Um, so talking about uh, duration, uh, in portfolios, should you own actual treasuries or is owning TLT a good proxy? They're, they're, those two different things, right? <clears throat> so in ideally, I want to own the actual treasury bond because why? I get protection of principle. If everything goes wrong, I always get my money back. When interest rates fall, the price of the bond goes up. I sell the bond for the capital appreciation and I get the interest income. So from an investment standpoint, longer duration, right? I want to own TL, uh, I want to own the actual treasury bond. If I'm trading a position for interest rates or I don't have the capital to buy sizable amounts of, of T-bonds, then TLT is my alternative. It, TLT tracks the 20-year treasury. So from an investment standpoint, from running a portfolio, um, I, I use TLT in addition to owning individual bonds. And if the account size is small, then we just use TLT because we, there's not enough capital there to buy the size of the treasury bond we need. So, uh, again, you know, trading and investing uh, versus long-term holding, right? That's, that's the, the they're the same. You'll get the same rate of return. The whole thing is going to be the same at the end of the day. Just really depends on your holding period and and whether or not you're if you're specifically focused on on principal protection, then buy the treasury bond. If you're interested on making money as an investment, kind of like owning a stock, and you've got the fundamental tailwinds, which you do with 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 bonds, then own TLT. So it'll work out the same way. Um, S and P five hundred or equal weight right now. S and P five hundred. The reason is, is that the market cap weighted index is dominated by the top 10 stocks in the, in the ETF, which are also the top 10 stocks in most ETFs. So when people make these passive investments into ETFs or they're buying ETFs because it's like, I, I, I don't want to try to buy individual stocks. I'm just going to buy the ETF. All that money flows into those top 10 stocks. So the S&P 500 market cap weighted index will outperform the equal weight. In a down market, the equal weight will outperform market cap weighted, assuming that those top 10 stocks are under pressure. See, it's all about what happens to those top 10 stocks. And this is why in 2022, during the market decline, 
despite the fact that underneath the surface there was mass devastation of stocks down 50, 60, 70, 80% in some cases, the top 10 stocks didn't fall that much. So the index as a whole did not fall that much. Equal weighted outperformed the S&P last year because of energy going through the roof, right? So that helped equal weight perform better last year. Right now, we're in an environment where market cap weighting is going to outperform equal weighting probably for a while. So it's a good question, though. 281-558-5738 or on our YouTube channel. Ask your questions there as well. Um, see if I can get one more in here before the break. If unemployment ticks up, will that help increase housing supply due to household cash flow? Well, of course. So if unemployment ticks up, then people are going to have to make a decision about what they do with their current home. And if I lose my job and I can't pay my mortgage, then I may have to sell my house. Or if I'm unemployed long enough, and saying the question is how long am I unemployed? Um, most people have less than two months of window if they get unemployed because they have no savings in the bank. So within that two-month period, I'm going to have to be deciding, hey, can I get a job or not? And if it doesn't look like I'm going to get a job, I'm going to have to make a decision about my house and where I live. I may have to sell it, move to an apartment, or sell it and downsize, whatever the question is. So yes... If unemployment does tick up, that should help some of the housing supply issue um, because house, household cash flows tighten up and we should potentially see, theoretically, more housing supply come to the market. See, right now it's been a standoff. People, as I said earlier, why am I going to sell my house if I don't need to to get a 7% mortgage when my mortgage is 3.5? But if I'm forced in a position I can't pay my mortgage... That dynamic changes. Okay, quick break. We'll come back. More questions and comments from you right here on The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It is The Real Investment Show. Uh, taking your questions and comments live right here, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. Um, I skipped a question on Indy Dave uh, because I wanted to give it a little bit more time, and I was running out of time in the last segment um, on our YouTube channel. So uh, if you're watching our YouTube channel, The Real Investment Show on YouTube, feel free to drop in a question. We'll answer it for you as best I can. Um, recommended... recommended let me uh, try to figure this out because it's, it's, it's kind of a broken question. Recommended retired 70-year-old stock bond allocation. So 70 years old, stock bond allocation for a 70-year-old. A couple of things factor into that equation. The first is, is how much income do you need from the portfolio? Because that's going to be a key driver of the allocation. If I need more income and less growth, then I'm going to have to have more money allocated towards fixed income. If I need more growth out of the portfolio, it's going to determine that I've got to have some more equity allocation. So part of that allocation is going to be determined on how much income you need. And so, you know, uh, you know the problem with saying, you know, what's the recommended allocation for, you know, for 70-year-olds, as an example, it's very hard to, to make a generalization because everybody's situation is different. This is why we do financial planning and stuff like that. Okay, but with that caveat in place. 
if I was 70 years old and I'm not that far away, I'll be here before you know. I'll still be doing this show when I turn 70 next year. Um, <laughs> you know, probably right now, 60-40 is going to be your, your bet. 60% stocks, 40% bonds is probably going to give you a better return on investment over time. Again, assuming all else is equal. Okay. You could also probably do 50-50. 50% stocks, 50% bonds. The reason I say that is because we have to adjust for inflation. If I buy a bond, and I hold and 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 by the way, this we have to assume that you're gonna buy this allocation and you're gonna hold it indefinitely, right? We have to adjust for inflation in this allocation. So I need enough equity exposure to grow in the markets over time to adjust for that inflation. I need the bond portion to deliver the income I need to live on. So if I have a million dollars, and I'm just throwing out a number, if I have a million dollars to invest, I put 50% in bonds right now, yielding roughly 4%-ish. And I get a little bit more than that if I step into corporates and some other areas of the bond market where yields are higher. So let's just say I get an average 4% yield from that. That's going to give me, you know, $40,000 a year um, on a million-dollar account. So take 4%, half of that, because half of my bond portfolio. So I've got twenty grand a year coming in just from the interest income on my bonds. Now, I add that to my Social Security, so I'm picking up another, you know, two grand a month, three grand a month from my Social Security. Does that fill my income need bucket for the year? Now, if, they, if the answer is no on that, then I may have to make some adjustments. Out of the other side of the portfolio, I'm doing dividend-yielding stocks. I'm, I'm a less concerned about the speculational side of the business. I'm not as concerned about chasing AI stocks at 70 years of age. I'm more concerned about good, steady growth companies over time that deliver a dividend yield to enhance my income that I'm getting from my bond portfolio. So... I've got 4%, you know, say I've got 4% coming from my fixed income side, so that's $20,000. I've got another 2, 2.5%, 2%-ish coming from the other half of my portfolio. So that's going to add an additional $10,000 to, to my income every year, plus my Social Security, any other income that I have, et cetera. But then that 50% of my portfolio that's in equity should grow over time to help adjust the entire portfolio for inflation. So again, without really knowing a lot of your particular specifics, like how much money you do have invest and what your, what your needs are, cash flow, et cetera, it's, it's really hard to give you a specific allocation recommendation, but probably at 70, you don't want to be overly concerned. You do want to be conservative and uh, you, know, you don't want to take 100% stock market risk at 70 years of age. You can't afford the loss. But if you build the allocation right, um, where you can mitigate some of the downside drag in markets when it occurs and still create that income over time, then you should be fine. So I hope that answers the question. It's, it's like I said, that's a complex question, um, and it it's, has a lot of moving pieces to it. But again, I wanted to at least spend enough time with you to give you a reasonable answer. A um, couple of questions. I got a question by email this morning. Hear a lot about the housing market with low inventory, a lot of new houses coming up. Who's paying for those projects? Home builders. 
Um, if you take a look at what's going on with home builder stocks right now, they're going through the roof. Um, again, there's not enough existing houses for sale. We talked about this earlier. And as a function of that, home builders are having to fill the gap. So as we saw yesterday, new homes being built, popping, um, new apartments, multifamily units hit an all-time high. Eventually, there's going to be blowback from this, too much supply of these projects getting built. And this is always the case when there's ever a situation where, you know, I can build an apartment, it fills up pretty quick. Everybody goes, oh, man, I got to go build some more stuff. And you wind up with too much inventory. And inventory is certainly building on that side of the ledger. So, so far, this hasn't caused a problem yet. Higher interest rates haven't really slowed that down because of the lack of existing home inventory. But eventually, if the Fed keeps hiking rates, eventually that lag effect, if unemployment ticks up, then we're likely going to see another downturn in the housing market, at least temporarily um, by that. In addition to insider activity, here's another question. In addition to insider activity, what other tools do you guys use to follow smart money? Well, interesting question. You bring that up. So a couple of things. Uh, if you go to our website, we have a research platform called SimpleVisor.com. I've been kind of sharing some of the screens with you this morning. We have this cool tool that I like a lot. It's called Super Investors. And yes, we can follow insider. Uh, you, if you click on an individual stock, you can see the insider trading activity that goes on with, a, with each individual stock. But I like this screen. We have a very long list of some of the um, highest quality investors over time, from you know Dan Loeb to Seth Klarman to Greenhouse, Greenhaven Associates to you, you name the person, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. We have their portfolio in here, and this is updated every quarter when they release their 13F holdings. And so we can actually see what these super investors are doing and all the holdings that they have. Now, this is a new tool we just added here recently, but it's a great it's a great way to kind of get some ideas. If you're looking for a portfolio, pick your favorite super investor, right? You want to know what Warren Buffett owns and how much he owns? Well, you, you can go to Warren Buffett and, and look him up. And you can see that, uh, as we already know, he owns a big chunk of Apple. <laughs> you know, about $150 billion worth of Apple stock is in his portfolio right now, followed by Bank of America, American Express, Coke. Um, so it's a, it's a great, great idea um, to, you know, or great tool to kind of look at, say, if I'm looking for some ideas um, about how to, to build an allocation, um, you know, there you go. And, and you know, if you, uh, we can also, we also took all that data and we combined it into one portfolio. So take all the super investors, put them all together. How are they allocated? And you take a look at that, 31% is technology. Consumer goods are about 7.5%. Consumer cyclicals about 6.4%. You know, financials are 20 Have about 6% to energy. So you can kind of see overall with all these really smart people, how do their portfolios kind of combine? So it's, it's a great tool to look at. In addition to just looking at insider trading activity and others. Now, uh, other tools that we look at also, uh, you know, involved around the issue of, of kind of what insiders are doing. Option activity is also another a key point. Uh, we're adding a lot more of the option analysis to our SimpleVisor website as well. So we're, we're continuing to develop a lot of tools for you. Um, at simplevisor.com. So again, if you want access to it, you can, you can try it out 30 days free. Um, but all those tools are there for you, along with our sector rotation models, our relative analysis, all that's there 
Uh, plus, we put blog posts there as well to keep you up to date on stuff. So anyway, good question. Uh, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. Um, got a couple of questions here, but I've only got about two minutes. Um, so I don't want to give you a, a kind of a quick answer. So we'll come pick up with questions right after the break here. Um, just real quick, though, futures right now down about 70 points on the Dow. Um, markets continue to open, look like they're going to open a little bit weak this morning. But again, I think a lot of this is going to have to do with, you know, what Jerome Powell says today. I don't expect him to say anything different than he said yesterday. Uh, he's, he talked to the House Financial Services Committee yesterday. Today, it's the Senate Banking Committee. So this is his annual congressional testimony that he does and talks about what policy is going on and what their views are, et cetera. Don't really expect anything different than what he said yesterday. Markets are kind of digesting that a bit, which is this idea of potentially a couple of more rate hikes before the year end. But really, all in all, the market just needed a reason to correct. Markets were well elevated above long-term means. It needed a tool. It needed a, a reason. It needed whatever it needed to have a little bit of a correction here. And that's all that's happening. This is, this is not a, a big deal. This will actually be an opportunity to add some exposure to your portfolio at a better risk-reward level. So don't get too wrapped up in, in the big headlines that come out. Pay attention to what the market's doing right now because technically we're in a bull market and we need to treat that as such. All right, be right back after the break with more of your questions and comments right here on The Real Investment Show. Be sure and give us a like and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. We certainly appreciate it. Be right back. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, getting ready to wrap up our two-hour edition of The Real Investment Show. We've enjoyed you sticking around for this entire time. Suckers. Uh, be, sure and, <laughs> be sure and go by our YouTube channel. We appreciate it. Subscribe. Uh, click the like button. Certainly helps us out a bit. Um, all right. Let's get back to the questions this morning. Got a few to, uh, few to wrap up the show with. Um, unemployment is the key to the full interest rate increase across the economy. Yeah. If we begin to see unemployment tick up, the Fed will stop hiking rates. That's what the Fed wants. The Fed understands this very basic analogy, which is that unemployment reduces demand, which reduces inflation. You can't theoretically reduce inflation substantially without a rise in unemployment. Because as long as people are... So, so how does the economy work? You'll all, so I've said this before, right? The economy is 70% consumption. Okay. We can't consume first. We have to produce first. We have to go to work. We have to produce something. We've got to get a check. Then we can consume, right? So production has to come before consumption. So the only way to reduce the consumption side of the equation, which reduces the demand on the economy, which then causes companies to go, well, if I want to sell a product, I've got to cut my prices, is I've got to reduce the production side of the equation. 
So the only way that happens is higher unemployment. And that's what the Fed is trying to get to here. And, and unfortunately, the market is not cooperating. And this is part and parcel a function of their own design. The shutting, the shuttering of the economy in 2020 has distorted the entire activity of the of the economy. Yes, we've been hiring back. We've been hiring a lot of people, but we're not hiring and creating new jobs. We're just hiring people back. We laid off in 2020. We're just getting employment back to where it should be. But this is being counted and treated as if it's all new work. But it's not. So we've distorted a lot of this economic input into the economy, but now we need to reduce that demand by reducing the work. So people have less money to spend, which then forces companies to start to bring down prices. And look, profit margins have corrected slightly, but they're still running at very elevated levels from long-term means. Same thing with earnings. Earnings have not corrected near enough to justify an economy growing at 2% annually. So the only way that we get there is through higher unemployment. How, do we, how, how does that happen? I don't know. Will it happen? I don't know. Certainly remaining stubborn right now, for sure. Um, I hesitate. So next question. I hesitate between two-year and 30-year bond yields. One is trading at 103 cents on the dollar. So in other words, the price of it's 103. The yield's 4.125. And one is 85 cents on the dollar at 2.5%. Which one do I pick? Don't worry about the price. Only worry about this key term. Forget about coupon. Coupon doesn't matter. If I have a bond that's issued at 5%, so let me just give you a, a, a very basic mathematical example. You have to follow along, get out your pen and paper. <laughs> Nobody said to be math involved this morning. Let's use a very hypothetical example. One-year bond is going to mature in 12 months. I buy it at 100 cents, on, I buy it face value, which is 100 cents on the dollar. January the 1st, it matures December 31st, has a 5% coupon. At the end of the year, I'm going to get 100 cents on my dollar back, Plus my $50 coupon. So I have a I have a thousand, I paid a thousand dollars for it. So I now get a thousand and fifty dollars back at the end of the year. That's my five percent coupon interest rate plus my principal. If interest rates go up to six percent, who wants my five percent bond? I want to I want to buy a six percent bond, right? The price of my bond has to fall in price. I'm still going to get the 5% coupon at the end of the year. But if somebody wants to buy my 5% coupon bond, they're going to want to pay less for it. How much less are they going to want to pay? They want to pay less so that at the end of the year, my return will be $1,000 plus 50. So I'm going to pay $990 up front. So I'm going to take a 10% discount up front. Not, not 10%, sorry, 1% discount up front. I'm going to take a 1% discount up front. So it's going to trade at a, at a price less than 
face value. And at the end of the year, I'm going to get, so I pay $990 up front. At the end of the year, I'm going to get $1,000 plus my $50 coupon. My total return is 6%, right? Equates to whatever the bond is in the market. That's why bond prices go up and down. All it's doing is adjusting for what the relevant interest rate is. So don't worry about the coupon. The coupon is irrelevant. The price is irrelevant. All you want to know is, is what is my yield to maturity? That's all I care about as a bond investor. If I'm going to be holding, and so your question is, if I'm planning to hold 10 to 15 years, then I want to buy the highest yield to maturity for 10 to 15 years. That's it. That's all you got to know. But it's yield. So, but the thing you want to know is yield to maturity. That's your answer. Don't worry about the price. Don't worry about the coupon. It's irrelevant. Yield to maturity is all that matters because the price is just adjusting the value of the bond to the relevant interest rate in the market. That's all. That's what's happening with the price. It's just every day it's adjusting. And this is why bond prices move up and down. Everybody's like, oh, my gosh, bond prices are going down. Who cares? It's just adjusting for the interest rate in the market. Yield to maturity is all that matters. So hope that answers your question. Um, well, how much time do I have? I have five minutes. Okay, we, we got time here. We got time for a couple more. I'm going to try to get these in. Can you explain why 20-year bond yields frequently run higher than 10-year and 30-year for a long period of time? Because the majority of the world now trades in basically 10 to 20-year bonds. That's it. So um, the price of the 20-year bond has a lot of demand, mortgages, you know, those type of things. Um, you know, 10-year bonds are, are driving a lot of factors now. So the, the prices of these bonds, you know, again, they're driven by supply and demand. So the, the more demand you have for a particular instrument, the lower that yield's going to be because prices are higher. The less demand you have right now, uh, prices will be lower and, and yields will be higher. So, again, it's just a function of supply and demand and what's happening in the markets. And, again, it goes back to what I was just talking about a second ago. It's just a repricing of the price of the bond relative to the relevant interest rate in the market. The vast majority of the world is operating on 10 years. I said 20 years earlier. I apologize. I made a mistake. The vast majority of the world is, is operating on 10-year bonds. 20s and 30s are more for mortgages and those type of things, so there's less activity out there. But it's all just a repricing of relative, of relative interest rates and demand for those, for those maturities. Is a separate dividend stock or ETF better for a retired person? Definitely individual stocks if you can if you can do the work, right, and understand what you're buying. And you're not just buying because of the yield. Right? That's the biggest mistake investors make. Oh, I bought this company because it has a 12% yield on it. Okay. If a company's paying a dividend yield well outside the rest of the market, is a problem with a stock. Most likely what's going to happen is that yield's going to get cut at some point. Because, again, the vast majority of the, of the market is going to operate with a 2 or 3% yield on stocks because that's the relative of the going rate. If you've got something that's trading well outside of that, that means that there's probably, not always, but there's probably something going on with the company that's caused a very sharp decline in price. The yield is up because of it, the yield is a function of what the company pays out relative to the price of the stock. So if there's been a very sharp decline in the stock, the yield's going to be high. And at some point, the company's going to go, I'm going to cut the yield. So to be careful chasing yield. But if you can do the work, do the research, 
and buy companies that are good, fundamentally strong, quality companies that have a strong, long history of paying out dividend yields. Paying out dividends, not yields, sorry. They don't pay out yields. They pay out dividends. But have a strong dividend history. Owning an individual stock will be better than owning an ETF. You can build a portfolio of stocks that have a higher yield than an S&P index ETF, as an example. So, yeah, you can do better over time. And you also concentrate money uh, better uh, in your portfolio. You can, you, can, you can weigh the risk better than an ETF because ETFs are typically dominated by just a, a few stocks at the very top of the index of the ETF. And you can do a better weighting in your portfolio to, to reduce your overall risk and still get a, a reasonable rate of dividend return. So absolutely, you can do that. Um, so as we get ready, let's see if I can get one or two more here. Um, question, if I have a pension that will cover my living expenses, should I invest 100% in an S&P index fund? Um, that's on you, man. That's, you know, that's the risk. If you've, got, if you've already got a pension that's going to cover all of your living expenses, that's fantastic. Um, you can certainly take on more risk in that regard relative to the market, but that depends on your age and how much risk tolerance you have and you know, can you withstand a 20 or 30% drawdown at some point in, in the index? And are you going to be contributing to it? There's a lot of factors that go into that. My overall assumption is that probably no. Uh, if, I did an, uh, if you do an allocation of, say, 60% S&P uh, ETF and 40% you know, a bond index, you'll probably do better over time. So, all right, have a great week. Uh, and uh, again, enjoy your day. We'll be back tomorrow. Richard Rosso will be here taking over for the show, doing financial planning, talking about all your, your financial planning questions tomorrow right here on The Real Investment Show. Uh, be sure to like the channel and let us know what we can do. Realinvestmentadvice.com for your questions and comments. Always happy to help you out. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.